Listener Production. A quick disclaimer before we get started. Although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. All the content and information discussed in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute medical advice. Remember, always consult your doctor before making any decisions about your health. Let me introduce you to Rachel. Rachel is five foot six and weighs 65 kilos. This is Amelia. Amelia is also five foot six and weighs 65 kilos. They both have a BMI and it's 23. 23 is in the normal weight range. Anyone below 18.5 is underweight. 18.5 to 24.9 is healthy. 25 to 29.9 is overweight. And anything over 30 is in the obese club. I must have put a decimal point in the wrong place or something. The thing is, Rachel's total body fat percentage is a lot higher than Amelia's. And Amelia's daily CrossFit sessions has made her muscle mass significantly higher than Rachel's. So here's the million dollar question. Are they equally healthy? The BMI, a favourite tool of doctors for assessing obesity-related risks, seems straightforward enough. You divide the weight by height in square metres and voila! Simple, right? Well, yes, but that's the problem. Let's go back to 1830. A Belgian mathematician by the name of Lambert Adolphe Jacques Quetelet was studying the average man, l'homme moyen. What he was not doing was devising how obese individuals were. His thinking was as simple as the formula. If you took thousands of measurements and compared them, you could find the ideal weight of man. Man being the operative word here. Remember, this was the 1830s, so the diversity and inclusion policy for medical research was pretty non-existent, and thus, every participant in the study was a white European male. Shocker. What he found was that as height increased, so did the weight. Coutelet actually stated in his study that the index should be used for population-sized data sets. But did that stop Ansel Keys? No. no! Who is Ansel Keys? Well, he was a prominent dietitian of the 50s with some, um, questionable theories. Weak on his diet and he'll want to kill himself. He rebranded Coutelet's equation as the BMI in his study on relative weight and obesity. And from there, the new measure caught on and the medical industry never looked back. What the BMI fails to acknowledge is how weight is distributed on the body. Let's take another look at Amelia and Rachel. Muscle weighs more than fat. It's the metabolic engine of our body. The more muscle you have, the more calories you burn, and even though Amelia weighs the same as Rachel, her physique is a lot smaller. But that doesn't mean she's necessarily healthier. According to the BMI, most athletes you see competing in the Olympics are actually overweight or even obese. You see, size plays a smaller role in overall health than we ever imagined. To get a full picture of health, you need to take in the whole picture. How old are they? What are their glucose levels like? What's their lung capacity like? Do they eat a balanced diet? You know that saying, you are what you eat? Well, it's popular for a reason. You see, biological molecules are necessary for every living thing on Earth to survive. 
from microbes to narwhals to Taylor Swift. The essence of life can be boiled down to carbohydrates, lipids, proteins and the nucleic acids. Carbs are essentially sugars and yes, they are good for you despite what some fad diets would have you believe. In fact, they're the only energy source your brain can actually use. So if you've ever wondered why your mum goes a bit crazy on her no-carb diet, well, that's why. She's not herself right now. Lipids are fats, essential to form the walls of your cells. And proteins are protein, essential for muscle building and a range of other things. Studies show that what you eat is much more important than what you weigh in terms of predicting health risks. Yet the BMI still persists. So why has the BMI come under fire? Well, let's say Amelia box-jumped a little too close to the sun at her early morning gym session and badly hurt her knee. It's a bad idea from the start. So much so that she needs surgery, like a full knee replacement. If Amelia's BMI was higher, she might be told that the risks are astronomically higher and in some cases, she wouldn't be eligible until her BMI was lowered. Let's say Amelia didn't need surgery, but still needed medical assistance. She explains to her doctor why her knees are hurting and is met with, well, have you tried losing weight? Oh, you're kidding me. It's easy to misdiagnose people when doctors wrongly assume that a person's complaints or symptoms come solely down to weight. So, is the BMI as problematic as it seems? And what role does nutrition really pay in health? Hi, I'm Dr. Sneh Wadwani, women's health GP and advocate, and this is Everything from A to V, the podcast separating the fact from the fiction when it comes to women's health. Here, we'll answer some of the most common questions I get asked by women just like you, and we'll debunk a few myths along the way too. But we were discussing matters of the vagina, Bruce, not the heart. In this episode, we talk to dietitian Geraldine Giorgio from Designer Diets, She's here to debunk some of the most notorious diet myths and give you the inside scoop on what's actually good for you. So, Geraldine, tell us a bit about yourself and your area of expertise. Well, I'm actually an accredited practicing dietitian. I've been a dietitian for, I'm not really telling you, but I'll say 25 years. How's that sound? <laughs> it sounds fab. <laughs> But look, a lot of women have had negative experiences when they go to their GPs with health problems. And lots of them say that their concerns often get reduced to how big or small they are. And doctors traditionally have have used BMI to measure how healthy someone Mm. might be. And so what are the primary issues with BMI as a tool in in its use to indicate health? Because there are a number of them, right? Mm, There is. I'm forever trying to debunk what BMI means. So a lot of my patients may turn up and they go, do I fit the range? Or you might have the high achiever and wants to be in the underweight range. But it really is just a guide of where your actual weight sits against your height. But this may vary depending on the patient. So we can use it to estimate the risk of heart attack or stroke, but there are limitations and it isn't accurate in some people. And I think it's important to remember that BMI is not the most reliable measure of whether your weight is in the healthy range because it doesn't actually give us an idea of your body composition. So lean body mass and bone mass. So if you were to look at a group of athletes, for example, they'll be very different. 
But some ethnic groups, including Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders, uh, they have a different range that you will utilise. Women who are pregnant, you can't use BMI for that group. People 19 years of age or younger, you can't use the BMI. But also too, what about people that are unwell and they might be carrying fluid, they might have risk of heart failure. And one thing I have been seeing coming through my patients, particularly if they've been diagnosed with diabetes or heart disease, they still see that is I need to lose weight. It's actually not that at all. It's actually understanding how to regulate glucose, for example, and it's not about how low can I go. You know, sometimes I have patients that have lost two kilos and I'm actually concerned if it's unexpected. So you've got to look at all the tools. Waist circumference is very important as well and girth measurements. And really understand that, you know, depending on the group that you're seeing, from an athlete to a younger person, making sure you're very careful of not just saying, get on the scales. It's really important to look at the total health person, you know, working with a dietitian and really looking at what that personal goal, like what we do at Designer Diets, so that really look at that personal dietary need for that mm. patient. And there's a lot of pressure on women these days to look and stay a certain way. I think, you know, the pendulum has swung back and forth. You know, we had the super skinny and then it was all about natural bodies and wasn't that fantastic and liberating. And we're now swinging back the other way again into this kind of, you know, being as thin as possible is, is what's seemed to be desirable in social media and on the TV and all of that. But your body drastically changes through the ages and stages for women. And, and I think fundamentally there is a lack of understanding out there as to what, you know, constitutes a woman's shape and size as well. So all of these things play a part, don't they? 100%. I, we're all one big walking hormone. <laughs> it's really understanding, like, there is a lot of pressure. I mean, after pregnancy, women often assume they're supposed to return to their pre-pregnancy weight. And usually by the sixth postpartum week, like six weeks, gosh. Um, however, many studies show that 20 to 50% of women retain a substantial part of weight gain during pregnancy at six months or even two years postpartum. I'm more worried when I see my patients postpartum, not your weight. I'm worried about your iron. I'm worried about your thyroid. I'm worried about is your glucose returned to normal after having gestational diabetes, for example, and really looking at ensuring we're avoiding nutritional deficiencies. And we want your hair to stay on your head. <laughs> you know, mm. we, we want to be a happy, glowing new mother. Absolutely. And I think with those hormonal changes during and after pregnancy, they cannot also cause fat to be deposited in different spaces. But that has a purpose, right? It has an important role. And I think that's often overlooked. 100%. We want to make sure that you know, our, our mums are actually nourishing both themselves, recovering from the experience of having a baby. I often say having a baby is like having a parasite. <laughs> you know, you've know, you got to grab that oxygen mask. It's the parent or the mother first, then the child. You know, we've got to start nurturing the mother. And weight is not an example of nurturing. It's not about weight loss. It's mm. about nourishment. And where do you think the pressure comes from in society in this space? Mm. I think, well, obviously on, you know, just pick up your phone, Instagram, Facebook. I actually had a little Google search about what sort of diets are out there. 500 million searches on Google 
alone of nutritional requirements in postpartum, 500 million. <laughs> and how many of those are evidence-based, right? Oh, God, I thought I used to be a third speaker in debating when I was at school, I tell you. <laughs> Every day I come in, I feel like I've got a duck for cover. But you know, nursing women, just nursing if we are breastfeeding, that you need at least 500 extra calories each day. That doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to burn 500 calories to be able to have 500 calories. We need that to... Now, make sure we've got enough protein, calcium, fluids to take, stay healthy and produce that nutritious breast milk. You need to aim for a balanced diet that includes iron-rich foods like you know, blood loss that occurs postpartum, you know, for, for women in recovery from a C-section, for example. You know, good fats, dairy, you know, plenty of fruits and vegetables. I mean, I was having a little search of what fad diets out there. Have you heard of placentofagal? I haven't. Does it give you an idea what it could be? Is it eating the placenta? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Oh, Let's talk about that. I know. loads of women think that this oh. is a good idea. What's the nutritional basis for eating your placenta? Well, we're not totally sold on the science behind it. So, <laughs> and it might sound simple, like keep it simple, stupid. Let's make sure we've got lean proteins, you know, good fats. We've got low GI carbs. A sandwich. There's nothing wrong with a whole grain sandwich with you know, nice lean chicken and salad and beetroot, for example. You know, there's nothing wrong with even making yourself, you know, a, a milkshake and reduce fat milk, for example, and a little bit of ice cream and some extra calorie and some fruit in there. Like there's nothing wrong with these foods. It's actually what food when. And I think it's really important that you're not going to create yourself your own job. You've got to be able to work it out as a family unit. Let's talk a bit about PCOS and menopause, these kind of conditions where there are significant hormonal shifts. They can influence the shape of the body and, and also the sort of feelings of hunger and satiety, can't they? 100%. It's all about how glucose moves through your body. So if I talk about insulin resistance, for example, it's a complex genetic condition. This is often something we don't hear about, but it is a hormone that we need to move glucose around and we need to eat carbohydrates. People think, oh, don't eat carbohydrates. Well, guess what? Carbohydrates fill your brain. So if you can imagine then, if you've got more insulin floating around and if you don't know then how food works and if you haven't got foods that are slow-release glucose going in, you're not going to have that steady fuel, that steady energy and that feeling of fullness. So the importance of low glycemic carbohydrates low glycemic load, which is how much carbohydrates there, and how do we build a meal to make sure that that fuel's steadily released. So then those people that have, for example, polycystic ovaries, it's a complex metabolic and hormone condition that's entwined with also how our glucose uh, regulates through our bloodstream with how much insulin we actually make. Because with excess insulin in that place is where then we have more testosterone and then we have hormone changes, ovulatory changes, more male hormone you know, more body hair, pimples, you know, you might have even issues, you know, from infertility, even struggles with weight. So understanding where you are, I always say to people, where are you in your life cycle? Are you in puberty? Are you in PCOS? Are you, have you had children? You know, are we going into menopause? Because then at menopause, you know, with this underlying metabolic health, you can experience just a change just from menopause and weight gain more around your abdomen but that could also be from a hormone shift and decline in estrogen, 
and then even increasing insulin resistance and metabolic health issues. Imagine your body is a car. How do we actually then drive that car to help negate these hormone changes that happen, promoting good lean body mass, looking at your lifestyle? How do we get something that's a pattern? It's like learning new patterns, more learning a routine that works for you at your time in your life cycle, and obviously then looking at your nutrition as well. But I think it's really important knowing where you are in that timeline of your life and then what works where. And, and you talked a bit about menopause and putting sort of more fat around your middle. So with these conditions like PCOS and menopause, where will women see those changes in their body classically? I mean, obviously it's different for everybody, but by and large there are some patterns that we can see, aren't there? Even like, for example, skin tag. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a sign of a metabolic shift that's occurring. So, and it's interesting actually, because even in menopause and PCOS, there are similarities. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Do we go hairy this time in our life or later in our <laughs> life? <laughs> Do we start losing hair now or later? And how can we start managing? So, so many people, I don't know about you, but and I, I could even say I even got caught up in it. Yeah, you know, get the personal trainer, go get. Do your Pilates five days a week? Do you? Yeah, and all of a sudden you're not even home. <laughs> You've got to be able to weigh it all up and work out what works for you that's not stressing you out. Because again, put yourself under stress, you can also change your hormones. So it's getting that fine balance, I think. Absolutely. And I think, you know, talking about, you know, the change in body shape and acknowledging that change in body shape, something I say a lot to the ladies I see is, you know, when there's a hormone shift in puberty, our bodies change. But we accept it. Everybody accepts it. Society accepts it. When we go through pregnancy, there's another hormone shift. And in that phase of life, again, there is acceptance, you know, because you're growing a baby. But somehow, we ourselves are less tolerant of that shift and what it brings in terms of body shape in the menopause or in other conditions such as PCOS, you know, we punish ourselves, we worry about it, you know, we stress about it, we think about getting rid of those kilos, and there's way more to it than that. And I think if we can compare men with women, women have a higher body fat content anyway, don't they? We need that body fat to create hormones. So I agree, actually, it's a good way to look at it that why is it only acceptable at puberty and when you're pregnant? I remember never having to suck my stomach in when I was pregnant. It was wonderful. But I think, yeah, I think there needs to be a shift in how we see in accept, but also set realistic goals. You may need to have to look at losing, I always say five kilos. If you've got excess five kilos and losing just five kilos can make all the difference to health, but it's got to be the right five kilos. So I think it's really important to just really work with someone to help you set those goals as well. Mm. And you've talked a bit around uh, a healthy, balanced diet, but this really is a key driver for our overall well-being, isn't it? And it's not just about how we look or feel, but it's also about preventing disease, you know, preventing complications down the track, right? So true. And I think, you know, often some patients go, I've never had high cholesterol, but now I've got high cholesterol. Am I eating too many eggs? And it's like a, a one food group or something I've done that I need to stop doing all of a sudden. But is it a hormone shift that's occurring that we've got to actually understand and then understand how we can manage that? So, I mean, usually my approach with all my patients, I never recommend missing a meal. It's actually also about fiber. You know, we all know what happens if you can't go to the bathroom. 
you may not survive very long. <laughs> Think of a fish. <laughs> and it's also that dreaded bloating, right? Oh, terrible. I'm always bloated. Well, how often do you go to the toilet and what does your poo look like? That's you it. Know? I know. We could do a whole thing about reading tea leaves, reading <laughs> the Bristol stool chart. <laughs> I'm good at a dinner party, but anyway, maybe not at dinner. But I, I think it's really important that, you know, treat yourself like I've got to fuel my body for the day. You know, balanced lean proteins, low GI, low GL, good fats, good fibres. But don't just count macros. Like there's so many people go, oh, I'm counting my macros. I go, okay, that's good. But what about micronutrients and what's important to at different times in your life? Like the number of people that all of a sudden turn up uh, with terrible osteoporosis, for example, and was unaware that it had really low vitamin D and you put that together with low estrogen and maybe genetic predisposition, you're in trouble. Interestingly, I've had quite a lot of students coming through and we're raising awareness with our obstetricians and gynecologists, for example, in our area, my two southeastern area health service, just raising awareness. Where are your patients getting their knowledge for pre-nutrition, pre-fertility, in gestation, postpartum, and then the hormonal changes through your life cycle. And I think people just think we automatically know. Well, we actually don't. Or we get so driven by what we hear, you know. What about dietary lectins, Geraldine? <laughs> I go, oh, my God, I love baked beans on the toast. Don't tell me they're going. So <laughs> they're gluten-free. But do you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, it's about what, when, again, and just work with someone and have a look at what your personal goals are. Absolutely. So, you know, we've talked about obviously how the diet can affect our overall health and prevent disease, but it's also great for the skin, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and that's a bit <laughs> of a seller at the moment. Everyone wants great skin. And you've written this fantastic book, The Australian Healthy Skin Diet. So tell us a bit, bit about that. Give us some nuggets uh, yeah. that we can work I with thought, on what that. What do I do? Turn to page. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea of the book, just really quickly, was just talking about un- understanding skin where you're on your life cycle, understanding you know, your risks, so talking about skin cancers and stuff like that. But then talking about what the role of macro and micronutrients are because they do play a role in looking after your skin. So if I was to give you a few little nuggets, and you might think you know these things, but you may not. For example, you know, we talk about omega-3s, but oily fish is really, really important. We know that, for example, um, we know it's good for brain health, but for skin, it can actually help control oil production. A lot of people think, oh, don't eat too much oil, I've got oily skin. But also fights the early ages, um, early signs of aging and also helps protect against sun damage. That doesn't mean we don't do the slip, slop, slap message and put that sunscreen on. But also too, it can also help with inflammatory skin conditions. So from eczema to psoriasis, highs, rosacea, which I like to call the red wine flush. I had an interesting one, green beans. Now, green beans, <laughs> they're fibre, but they're also a good source of silica. And silica is a building block of skin and hair. And a lot of people go, oh, I'm going to go and have a vitamin for my hair. And I go, well, what about your food? You know, So having a good source of silica can also help with collagen production because we all talk about having collagen. There's actually research ingesting collagen. However, what about the building blocks to make our own collagen? Mm. So... You know, we know that if we can have, you know, nourishing foods like green leafy vegetables, you know, green beans, all that sort of stuff, strawberries, cucumbers, celery, mango and asparagus are all sources of silica. And then maybe I can go on, but I'll talk about eggs. So, Oh, eggs. yeah, let's talk about eggs. I'm a huge egg fan. Eggs have been, you know, known 
to have cholesterol in them. And there's this really bad vibe about cholesterol, you know, whether it's avocados, they're fatty and eggs, they've got cholesterol in them. But it's not all bad, is it? There's good cholesterols and there's not so great cholesterols. Yeah, well, I think the National Heart Foundation is actually, that's where it was sort of all coming from in the 80s, okay? So now we now know that four, six, eight eggs a week are perfectly safe, perfectly good for you. They're a complete protein. They're obviously easy to make and be able to put into your daily intake. But we're also learning more about the benefits of not just the protein, the actual diet, your cholesterol does not equal high cholesterol. It's saturated fats and trans fats that we need to worry about, which, yes, there is cholesterol in eggs, but it doesn't directly equate to making cholesterol. And then it's really important to understand well, what are the benefits. So there's choline, which is found in eggs, really important for a, um, a growing fetus, um, growing a healthy baby, but also zinc. Now, zinc is very important for your skin. It's anti-inflammatory, again, protects from sun damage and exhibits an antimicrobial action as well. And there's a whole section on gut microbiome in my book as well. I think if I was to write another book, it might be a lot about gut microbiome. It's, a, it's like a fingerprint. We've all got a different gut microbiome and we can actually nourish and nurture our gut microbiome. But if we also know that zinc is also an antimicrobial and it also helps skin repair, helps with wound healing, I don't know if you all like oysters out there, but oysters, legumes, seeds, nuts, and then obviously eggs. So I think we need to now be kind to the egg. (laughs) (laughs) Love your egg. Yes, love your egg. So nutrition is a really good indicator of health. What are the other good indicators of health besides what you look like? I mean, for me, when I speak to my patients, I'm like, what do you do? What can you do comfortably? What, do you, what makes you feel good? And if they're coming in saying to me, I've got nothing in the tank, mm-hmm. then I'm going over their diet because I'm wanting to know, what are you putting in first? Because you're getting nothing out, so what are you putting in? So what are your sort of key indicators of, of sort of health and well-being? Energy is the biggest one, I think. A lot of people say I'm tired lacking energy, losing hair, my skin's no good, my bowels aren't going well, I can't get myself to the gym, I can't get out of bed, exercise, endurance, how's their sleep, how productive have they got mind, have they got a foggy mind or mind fog. So these are sort of things that I look out for because, again, it's not just look good, it's all about feel good, look good to feel good, feel good to look good is my little mantra I often say. I think that you need to look at all those things. Like I know myself, I go, I go to a doctor, A, I try not to say what my profession is, but B, oh, you look all right. (laughs) (laughs) It's maybe what Red Lippy does. (laughs) But anyway, so I think it's really important to, like you say, ask those questions. How are you actually, how's the engine running? How are you performing? I think are really good indicators of your health. Mm. So when it comes to diet and nutrition, what is the one thing that you wish all women could know? Well, I have written here, thinking about it, avoid dietary restrictions, including no carbs. I think that's a great one. We're omnivores, right? We're meant to eat everything. We are. So that's my one thing. (laughs) There is one more thing. (laughs) Go on then. I think it's really important that you preserve your lean body mass. It's not about how low your weight can go. I've got patients that are using different tools 
jump on the scales, I can't much weight. No, I do their measurements as well. I do send them some DEXA scans and things like that. Sometimes they've lost like three kilos, but they've still got 90 centimetres on the waist. So I think it's really important that when you are wanting to look at a health change, work with your GP, work with a credit practicing dietitian and make sure you have an implant that's designed right for you working in your multidisciplinary team. Yeah, I think that's really important. And and one thing we neglect to think about sometimes is when the focus is on weight loss, you know, we're also potentially losing muscle bulk and muscle is really important, isn't it? And, and people who exercise a lot can put on muscle bulk and not lose weight. So true. Or you might find that you're just so stable for some time, you somehow think it's not working. But are you walking up those stairs better? Like, are you puffing and huffing and or are you finding you can do your shoelaces up? Well, guess what? That means you're losing midriff weight. So I think it's really important to look at the gains that you're achieving. And are you feeling happy? Are you feeling healthy? Fantastic. So to recap, the BMI isn't the best tool to determine health. And if you do feel like your health concerns are minimized to your weight by your GP, I promise you there are GPs out there like me who want to listen. So don't give up. Most importantly, if you want help with your diet and you want to feel better in your body, seek advice from an accredited dietitian like Geraldine. Thanks so much, Geraldine. It's been a joy to have you here today. Thank you so much. So there you go. Health is much more than a number on a chart. If you want to feel comfortable in your skin by losing a few kilos, taking a microscope to your diet, your activity levels and your mental health is just as important as tracking the number on the scale. This podcast is a listener production hosted by me, Sneh Wadwani. Producer is Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with sound design by Kelly Falston. Listener.